Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Sarah. And this is Big Small Talk. This is the podcast where we try and cover the entirety of the news cycle from the serious to the frivolous all in one place. Because loving pop culture doesn't mean you don't understand politics. And today we're going to talk about... Mushroom murder charges, intimate partner violence, Priscilla, Gaza, the Beatles and whistleblower laws. But first, we would like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording today, the Gadigal people, and pay our respects to elders past and present. But before we get into the headlines, what's your personal headline of the week? Um, it's my sister's 18th birthday. and so, Today? No, not today. It's actually later. Like, it's actually next week, but we went away for the weekend to – she lives on the Central Coast. And so we went and, like, spent the weekend with her. And it's just so exciting to me because I'm seven years older than her and it's really – like, we are very similar. She's a bit wilder than me and less intense, so I love her for that. Good on you, Kate. But it was really nice. Like, I've, I, <laughs> her birthday list is, like – Frank Green bottle. <laughs> like, she, you know, I love her already. Yeah, she, and she is the one who's like, you've got to get up on Olivia Rodrigo, listen to Sarah. Like, Thank she you. is that person. <laughs> um, she is a true Gen Z, but it was just really nice to go and see her. That's and so, you had a big family weekend. Yes, then. it was, you know, big. And I love that it's, it's, you know, it's always a bit complicated. I'm not saying it was all sunshine and rainbows. It's always juicy, it's isn't it? It's always juicy, but it, it's really about Kate. And I just like, I'm so excited that she's going to be an adult. And, you know, when the age gap closes and, you know, they're getting more adult and you're going to kind of become closer, like, it's just yeah. Exciting. And yeah. that age gap feels so much smaller. Like, give it another few years and it won't feel like anything at all. Exactly. And I'm so excited for that now that she can drive and drink and, like, not at the same time. And she, <laughs> and she can... And Yay! She, <laughs> and she can, we can just hang out more and be, like, closer, which is really nice. Oh, that's so nice. What's yours? Mine's also family-related. So this week we moved out of our family home. Oh, it's always a bit sad, isn't it, your childhood it's a home? Bit, it wasn't actually – well, we've been there since I was about 18. Mm. So a good chunk, yeah. I would say. Some memories there. But it is just really surreal to go stand in an empty house and be like, oh. It's over. End it's of an been era. a good run. But the funniest part of moving is like my mum then handing over all the random childhood stuff that like we didn't really know was still existing. And yeah. I'm like, what am I going to do with an Urban Outfitters record player now? <laughs> I thought this went missing six years ago. It's like, like girl sharehouse starter pack, young professionals. It's, it's kind of fun. <laughs> Facebook marketplace job. Uh, no, I'm going to make use for all You're of it You're emotionally somehow. attached. <laughs> I am emotionally attached to all of it. That is sweet. Let's get into it. Let's do it. A Victorian woman accused of poisoning her in-laws with deadly mushrooms at a family lunch has now been charged with murder and attempted murder. Story of the year. Story of the year. Uh, we were saying this before. It is so weird to be this invested in a storyline when it is... A, a, a tragedy about murder, but this story is insane. Absolutely wild. It's wild. Okay, if you've listened to the pod for a while, you've probably heard this story. I made a big deal of it a few weeks ago, and I'm just going to give everyone an update on the crazy mushroom poisoning story. So where we left off, on the 29th of July, 2023, Erin Patterson hosted a lunch for her ex-in-laws and another couple at her home in the small rural town of Leongatha in Victoria. She invited Don and Gail Patterson, her ex-husband's parents, and Gail's sister Heather Wilkinson and her husband Ian Wilkinson. The lunch was organised as a reconciliation effort for the sake of the two children that she shared with her ex-husband. For lunch, she served beef wellington, topped with mushrooms, 
Now, her kids were reportedly sent to a movie and then when they returned, given a separate meal and Erin didn't have the meal, wasn't hungry from what I understand. (laughs) Three people died. Why are people so suspicious? Well, A, so pretty much what they found, just to go back, pretty much what they found is that the beef wellingtons were topped with death cap mushrooms, which make your like whole body shut down within 48 hours. The title itself, self-explanatory. Death cap <laughs> mushrooms. And everyone was like, how did she accidentally serve death cap mushrooms? Now, it turns out that she was actually quite an experienced mushroom forager because Mushrooms are really common in that area, but so is death cap mushrooms. And a lot of people were like, she probably should have known what they look like. But then she also at the time claimed that she got them from an Asian supermarket. And that was after a while. She wouldn't say where she got them from for a really long time. So everyone was like, what is going on? The second thing was pretty convenient that her and her kids didn't have it. But the kicker, and this was the bit I was obsessed with, so, and I think I said it at the time when we first covered this story, I was like, oh, this is a bit of conspiracy land. I don't know how, I didn't even know if I can comment on this. But glad you tabled it at the time. Glad I tabled it at the time. So, the conspiracy then gained more traction after an old Facebook post from her ex-husband, Simon Patterson, resurfaced, in which he revealed that a mystery illness had put him in intensive care for 21 days after he collapsed at his home in May last year, suffering from an undiagnosed stomach illness. He said, I had three emergency operations, mainly on my small intestine, plus an additional planned operation. My family were asked to come and say goodbye to me twice. I was not expected to live. The couple are believed to have separated soon afterwards. So everyone was like, wait, was that also? No one knew. We were like, we can't speculate. Update. 2nd of November, Erin is arrested and charged with three counts of murder and five counts of attempted murder. Oh, my fucking God. (laughs) OMFG. OMFG. In court documents released to local media, prosecutors accuse Erin of attempting to kill her estranged husband four times. Four. Four times. On occasions between November 2021 and September 2022. The Facebook post was right. But she's so unsuccessful. Well, allegedly. 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 Neighbours in the town of Leangatha, Victoria, suggested that the 49-year-old knew she was going to be arrested the following day. And so she then decided to throw a, quote, freedom fling. So it's been reported she threw a small party. At her home the night before her arrest for five of her closest friends. I need to get better party names. Freedom (laughs) Fling. I'm obsessed. She appeared on court for the first time on Friday. She has been remanded in custody. She maintains her innocence and the next hearing is scheduled for May next year. My thoughts on this is I really feel for the children. First and foremost, I feel for everyone involved, people who have lost loved ones. Secondly... I want this turned into a novel, mm, ASAP. 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 That many attempts? Sure, The, the small country involved. town, the sleepy small country town. Like, come on. Also, I want the final scene to be her and her five closest friends, like, in that, like, having a wine, being like, well, <laughs> like, that's where it ends. But this is, this is just, like, the atmosphere is built. You can feel the story. Also, every image of her is tragic. As in, it's like she's just, like, looking at the sky, like, why, why has this happened to me? Like, I know. She I is know. the perfect media fodder. <sighs> It's an insane story, so we're all getting ahead of ourselves. It is still allegedly that we will have updates on this next year, of course, when the trial actually starts. But we can say the A word as many times <laughs> as we want. 
An Australian study has found that 30% of people aged 18 to 19 have experienced intimate partner violence in the last year. So... Basically, this research comes from the Australian Institute of Family Studies, which has been tracking 10,000 Australians who were born in 2004. I just find this sort of research fascinating, where Mm. they pick up a group of children at a certain age in a certain year and track them for their lifetime to sort of look at different aspects of their life and and the sort of differences in age groups across lifetimes. Also, I get shocked when I say 2004 because I think... Are they teenagers? I know. My my brother's (laughs) a 2004 baby, so it's really shocking to me that he's 19. Yeah. But this study specifically looks into things like relationships, work, different lifestyle aspects, essentially. And the results that were released last week from this group of 10,000 showed that 25% of these 18 and 19-year-olds had suffered emotional abuse, 12% had suffered physical violence, 8% had experienced sexual abuse, and 29% had experienced at least one form of intimate partner violence. And this was not just like overall, this was in the last year. So it's not like we're looking at when they were 15 or 14, it's looking at in the last year, in the last 12 months that's what they had experienced the abuse was yeah emotional physical and sexual and it was not directly linked like there was no direct correlation between any person of any specific sexual orientation or gender but it did find that while emotional and physical abuse was consistent across genders sexual abuse was more common among young women Mm. and then emotional abuse was the most common overall to be experienced by this group I was also reading like a lot of different publications came out with coverage of this research but I was reading a post from Triple J Hack, which was talking about the University of Tasmania's researcher, Dr. Carmel Hobbs, who basically they quoted, and she was talking about the use of technology as a like additional mechanism for abuse and control. And so it was talking about like location sharing, password sharing, mm. and the control over social media accounts and the monitoring that occurs for young people and how that kind of creates a different element, which I thought was... It, it's as much as it's obvious, it's not that talked about. The having constant tabs on yeah. someone, and it made me really reflect on like I think because we're six years older than these eighteen and nineteen year olds, like the difference in what we experienced because we didn't actually like grow up with social media as a constant no. part of our lives until mid high school. I would but say. You know what? That's actually a trend on TikTok right now of girls saying what their rules are for their relationship. Yes, and every single time it'll bring up. We have each other on Vine, my friends. And I think sometimes the reasoning is, well, why wouldn't he? It shows trust in our relationship. And then the other thing is it's a safety thing. So he knows where I am. But I think it's a really slippery slope. Like yeah. I was thinking about it's this. It's really interesting. Because I saw this trend too and I was thinking about this in my own life and I don't know about you and I don't know if this is a weird take from me but I don't actually like any of my friends or anyone in my life having my location at all times mm. unless say I'm going on a date with someone I don't know. Then yep. I will share my location with one or two friends just so they know what's going on. But I find it kind of a boundary cross because one of the things I find is if my, one of my friends wants to hang out and I just don't want to, I don't want to have to lie or be able to be tracked to say I'm busy. Like, I just want to be able to not have to be switched on and available at all times. Yeah. And that's, like, a really important thing for me in my private life is just to have the ability to be by myself. Yeah. I actually do have three of my best mates on Find My. That has never bothered me. Like, we joke that it's like checking your Sims are in the right place. That's funny. I love that. (laughs) But I get that as well. Like, I think it depends on who your friends are or whether you feel like that's a boundary you have with them or not. Yeah, Yeah. and it's something where, like, a lot of my friends have each other, but I'm very much like I will share, again, in particular circumstances if I'm worried about something, Mm. but I don't need to know where they are at all times. And I actually find it, like, a bit weird if I have that much access to people because it's kind of like with social media now, the way we operate in relationships is I can see if someone I'm dating has liked 
a particular person's photo. Like I can monitor their past relationships, so potentially who they're dating. Like even things like Strava. It's like if yeah. I have my Strava on public, people could see where I live technically. Yeah. And so I think about all of this access we have. And one of the other things I was thinking in relation to this study, and I guess the question is, is it that abuse is occurring more commonly or is it that now we're able to identify what abusive behaviours are and so more young people are reporting it? Yeah. Because when I first read this, my initial thought was, God, you'd hope it was getting better yeah. by this generation. Like surely these statistics need to be improving. We're getting better education slowly. Mm. People are more aware. But I actually think... It is because of that that yeah. we're seeing these numbers actually higher I because think, we're understanding it more. Exactly. And I think it's almost with the data what tends to happen, especially with things like domestic and sexual violence and then abusive behaviours is when kids are educated to identify what different behaviours are and able to label them and report on them, mm. you see a temporary increase in reporting and then it drops down because it's like education leads to reporting, but then it actually changes the way that large groups of people engage in that behaviour because once they're educated, they can change their behaviour accordingly and be in healthier relationships and things. Mm. The data also showed that when people have stronger friendships and stronger parental relationships, they were less likely to suffer from abuse, which yeah, makes sense. That but it's, makes sense. it's really important to note, I think, too. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I think it'll be interesting to see in another 10 years if this starts to change. And I think we're seeing that spike in social media monitoring and social media availability. But I think we're also seeing a new wave where people are less likely to be so heavily focused on social media. And will we sort of regress from that as well? I'm mm. interested to see how that unfolds over the next decade as well. Agreed. The Oscars now have the opportunity to do the funniest thing ever, which is give Jacob Elordi the award for his portrayal of Elvis in Priscilla. God, he's hot. So we have another Elvis movie upon us, and this time it's a Sofia Coppola film starring Australia's own Jacob Elordi, and it's called Priscilla. So Priscilla is a biopic based on Priscilla's 1985 memoir, Elvis and Me, and it depicts her courtship between Elvis, which began in 1959 when Priscilla was 14 years old and Elvis was 24 years old. Priscilla Presley, interestingly, is also credited as an executive producer on this film. Now, there's been a lot of talk surrounding this film already, so I wanted to run through it. But mainly the talk is about how this film is being directly compared to Baz Luhrmann's Elvis film starring Austin Butler. And people are particularly into the comparison of the two male leads here as they actually share an ex-girlfriend. I don't know if that's a necessary detail, but Kaya Gerber, I actually think she dated them both as their respective Elvis films came out. That's awful. That's what a crazy. horrible experience. That's Anyway, mainly the comparison has been because the two have approached the role very differently. As we all remember, Austin gained plenty of attention for the way he continued to sound just like Elvis way after filming Wrapped, like claiming it then as his natural voice. I don't know. But that got a lot of memes. It got a lot of hype around it. I don't know if that was fair, but he took method acting to the extreme, Very essentially. Funny. <laughs> and he even went as far as to say that Elvis was now part of his DNA. Even for the audition, he hired a dialect coach and turned his apartment into like a detective scene and mapped out all of Elvis's life. Like this was before he even got the part. He also said that he didn't see his family for about three years and that the whole process of this caused him to, quote, go to the very edge of what is possible. He actually became so entwined with the part that he then spiraled on the last day of filming once it wrapped into sickness and was rushed to hospital because his body just started shutting down. Uh, extreme stuff. 
It's so dramatic. It's well, but then there's something to be said. Like there's a lot of method actors out there and this is their craft, this is their art. This is it was he did an amazing job. Yes, he did. It was great. It was, it was I great. loved the movie. It I was loved so it. good. Like hand it to him, it paid off. Unfortunately, <laughs> compare that to Jacob actually went on Jimmy Fallon and confessed that he'd never had any previous desire to portray Elvis and said before he auditioned for the part, his only knowledge of the iconic singer was limited to the 2002 Disney movie Lilo and Stitch. (laughs) Now, I love Lilo and Stitch, but like, come on. It's really funny. (laughs) He also said that for the audition, he just read the lines for like 15 minutes and then shot two takes and, you know not thinking it would go anywhere. He also said in an Entertainment Tonight roundtable interview that one of the big things he did to get into character, so this was, I guess, as far as his method acting went, he ate a pound of bacon every single day, which is what Elvis did. Yeah, and died. Like, <laughs> like I wouldn't recommend, you know, nutritionists everywhere. Like, I know. Do we think it's fair to compare the two? Of course. You think so? I think we have to compare the two. They're playing the same role very close together. Like, I think it's only natural, right? Well, I understand why it's being compared. I think that is only natural. Firstly, because Elvis by Baz Luhrmann was so highly anticipated and so successful and came out so close to this. And for the actors individually, I do think it's just because of how much media attention and meme and noise was around Austin Butler's portrayal. But Jacob fair enough, has called this out pretty early on. He said in a recent interview with E, I don't know why people make art a blood sport. It's fucking absurd. And even said that watching these films back to back would just make a killer double feature. Uh. Right thing to say. My thing is, he obviously would have known that Austin Butler's whole thing was the method acting shtick and that he spent three years in the voice and blah, blah, blah. So is Jacob Elordi actually playing into that with the Lilo and Stitch stuff? I'm trying to figure out if he would or if that is just – that just seems like his personality, though. But it's funny to me because I thought Jacob Elordi would be more like Austin Butler because he does seem to take himself very seriously. Yeah. So I was shocked by the, like, pound of bacon and 15 minutes beforehand. Like, I was shocked by that. Yeah. Well, the other thing is Priscilla herself was shocked by how good Jacob Elordi's voice was to sound like Elvis. And, like, he's sounding normal again in interviews. Like, But I think the point is, is for him it was really easy because his voice is already sitting in that register. Like, Mm. he was like, I already have this super low voice. All I had to do was put the twang on. It didn't need years of perfecting in that, which would... That would suck if I was all oh, yes. But what's also interesting, it was adding another layer to this movie, is that Priscilla's daughter, Lisa Marie, who died back in January, in two emails obtained by Variety, reportedly told Sofia Coppola that she thought the script for the film was shockingly vengeful and contemptuous and depicted Elvis Presley as a predator. The email reportedly said, as his daughter, I don't read any of this and see my father in this character. I don't read this and see my mother's perspective of my father. I read this and see your shockingly vengeful and contemptuous perspective and I don't understand why. I will be forced to be in a position where I will openly say how I feel about this film and go against you, my mother, and this film publicly. She also went on to say, I feel protective over my mother who has spent a whole life elevating my father's legacy. I'm worried she doesn't understand the intentions behind this film or the outcome it will have. She then also then compared it to Baz Luhrmann's film and said, like, unsure why this would even happen on the heels of such fantastic film. 
Interesting. But again, they're they're two very different perspectives, but that's the purpose. It's Priscilla. I mean, from what I understand, that script was an earlier version of the script, and I think it was actually trimmed by about 10 pages after that. So who knows how she would feel about it now. I think it's tough that she's not actually here to Mm. see it and review it. But again, this is Priscilla's story from Priscilla's memoir, and she's an executive producer on it, giving it her big tick of approval and has praised the film since. I can't wait to see it. I think it does play into how young Priscilla was and how he moulded her in a lot of ways in those formative years. But I think that's interesting. I think it's important. Yeah. I think it's neglectful to leave those bits out because, you know, the age gap is predatorial. No matter how you look at it, I would be interested to watch it and actually see a more honest and different perspective than the glorification that often Mm. Butler's was. From what I understand from Sophia's comments is that it's not about painting Elvis out to be in a bad light. It's about bringing nuance to the story. Absolutely. And it's not an attack. It's just this is a complicated, nuanced story and it's from someone else's perspective. Yeah. The Palestinian death toll now exceeds 10,000, while the death toll in Israel sits at 1,400. Here's the latest on what's happening in Gaza. So almost 25,000 people have been injured and thousands of others are said to be missing, while a third communications blackout started in Gaza on Sunday night, which cut off Palestinians yet again from the outside world. We also saw that Israel's military said on Monday that its troops had encircled Gaza City and it effectively split the Gaza Strip in half. I also read that 18 United Nations and other humanitarian organisations have issued a joint statement calling for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire, which is pretty notable because a lot of the time these NGOs don't come together and take a singular stance, so it's really important and it's it's quite telling that they've been demanding this together. Out of those 25,000 that are injured, 23,000 need immediate medical attention. I read that a United Nations official had said that the average Palestinian is currently living on two pieces of bread a day. Hospitals are being forced to shut down after electricity and fuel has been cut. And I've read that 180 pregnant people are giving birth each day and that C-sections and these births are being performed without any anesthesia. This is happening every single day. People need desperate medical attention and there are no supplies. No. There are no, there is no accessibility here. No, and the Communications cutoff is is so insane because we have no way of understanding what's happened or the extent of it. No. The death toll, it, it would be largely inaccurate. Like I've been seeing the, the numbers change overnight, but there are so many people that are currently missing as well. Like we just don't know right now. Um, and this Palestinian death toll of over 10,000 includes at least 4,000 children we know yeah. and has been reported that more children have died in Gaza in the last three weeks alone than from all conflicts globally since 2019, according to Save the Children, which is an NGO. Mm. I've also seen that nearly 1.5 million people are now internally displaced in Gaza, according to the UN, and more journalists have been killed over a four-week period than in any conflict in the last 30 years, and more United Nations aid workers have been killed than in any comparable period in the history of the organisation. Like, this is setting a new precedent. This is the worst we've seen in decades. Yeah. I think our stance on this is to call for a ceasefire. Oh, now. absolutely. And it, it's really shocking because, again, we're going to get into the Australian response, but there is a really lack of robust messaging from the Australian government on the ceasefire response. Um, and I think that we're seeing a lot of people, especially on social media, go between like, release the hostages, ceasefire, humanitarian pause. This is 
semantics. There is a difference, and we've discussed this on our um, Instagram, bigsmalltalk underscore pod, about the difference between a humanitarian pause and a ceasefire. It's very much about the different length and the different reasoning for the stoppage. Mm. But I think that, you know, when we're getting into like this debate about hostages and ceasefire and pauses and all of the language just becomes confusing for people. And it's really about getting to the point which is no matter how you say it, a ceasefire is ultimately what everyone should be seeking here to allow people to get out and to allow lives to be saved and to allow supplies, food, resources to get into Gaza. Like, from whatever angle you're looking at this from, it needs to stop. And I think that that's ultimately what we should all be talking about. Yeah, I agree. So why is everyone talking about Scott Morrison right now? I just, this is ridiculous, but basically former Prime Minister Scott Morrison and former UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson have touched down in Israel on what is being described as a solidarity trip. Scott Morrison has told reporters in Israel that the world should not get suckered into supporting a ceasefire in Gaza as it is a play from Hamas. I don't know why we are even looking at him. I I hate to be talking about it, but it's really important that we cover what the Australian response is. Mm. You know, meanwhile, the Greens have stormed out of Senate question time to protest the Albanese government's failures to demand a ceasefire. Um, The Greens deputy leader, Maureen Faruqi, led this boycott, which basically declared that Labor was, you know, standing behind weasel words that aren't going to stop war crimes. And she was chanting free, free Palestine with her fist raised as they boycotted. Meanwhile, I also saw this morning that former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull has described Scott Morrison's behaviour as showboating, which I completely agree with, and publicly advised Anthony Albanese to remain focused on Australia. Because, you know, as Turnbull said, there's no point in Albanese going to Israel and to do this solidarity because all we can do is solidarity and support. Um, But realistically, he needs to be standing in Australia. And, you know, if we're supplying resources to Gaza, that's one thing. But I think that getting into this sort of solidarity idea is actually quite unhelpful. Mm. And again, it's sort of repositioning the facts, which is... The death toll in for Palestinians is significantly higher yeah. than in Israel. Yeah. And the fact that we are unable to actively and clearly communicate that, our government is unable to talk about the occupation, to talk about a genocide which is happening before our very eyes, is so telling. And also a lot of footage has resurfaced of Anthony Albanese in you know, his early days as a politician speaking to freeing Palestinians Mm. and now that he's Prime Minister that has completely turned into different messaging which supports the party line which is quite disappointing I think for a lot of people because we can see the disparity in these numbers and we can see what's happening in Gaza and a lot of it we're not seeing because of these communications blackouts and it's just really disappointing that they can't stand up and say something because they're so afraid of the US. I actually saw something online this morning that I think summed up this sentiment Jewish safety and Palestinian freedom are not opposing causes. Don't let anyone position them that way. Yeah. It's a humanitarian crisis. We're going to put stuff in the show notes of ways to help. And that's the thing is your disengagement isn't helpful. Your will and want to look away should be more reason to drive action. Yeah. With the help of AI, the Beatles have released a new song, despite the band breaking up in the 70s and two of its members being no longer alive. What a time. Have you, I haven't even listened to it yet. This is, this it's is good. crazy. I actually really like the song. Huh. So as you've probably seen or heard, Paul McCartney has spent the last few weeks touring Australia, putting on, from all accounts, a fantastic show which includes his work from the Beatles, his solo work, and some unexpected deep cuts. Everyone seems to have loved it. Yeah, the yeah. feedback's been really good. And it's all been made an even bigger deal with the release of a new Beatles song, Now and Then. Although, as I said, it does feel weird to have a song come out from a band that's like very much no longer together and very 
very old. Yes. <laughs> but it's really interesting because the song is one of four songs from a Lennon demo cassette provided by Yoko Ono and given to Paul McCartney back in 1994 with a handwritten title for Paul. And so at the time that that happened, for a bit of background, the other three songs on that demo were made and completed back in 1995. However, the last track, which is this one, Now and Then, was deemed too tricky to try and revive because John's voice was buried into like the mono mix. So it just kind of sat there for 28 years Mm. and they were like, this is too hard to work with. Jump to 2021, where filmmaker Peter Jackson, who... Peter Jackson is who was behind the very successful recent Beatles documentary series, Get Back. And while he was making that, he actually developed an AI tool that was then able to isolate John's voice and make it usable from that song. That is so cool. So that's how that came to be. Yeah, I thought that was so interesting. And then George's archived acoustic guitar take was added with Paul providing then updated piano, and then Ringo added remotely from here. He was in Los Angeles. And also, adorably, Giles Martin, who is George's son, contributed as well with a string arrangement, which was really nice. That's really lovely. Yeah. So a lot of question around this, and I would love your take on this, is, is this really a Beatles song? Like, does AI really give you permission to call it that? I was thinking about this this morning when I was seeing the story because I was like, oh, I, I, I love this question. I think it kind of is about the sentiment like, okay, if you were a famous musician and you died and like if you were told now, okay, they're going to make a song that includes your voice and they're going to use this tech, would you want that? Would yeah. you want it to live on? And I think that like if you would, then it's like, yes, it, it is. Yeah. Because I think that's what it sort of speaks to for me is that I'm like, that would be so nice if people piece together different elements of my sort of like artistry or craft yeah. and use them after I died. Like as much as there's some sort of like, don't fuck it up, like don't make it bad. <laughs> I think it's lovely. I think we could have a broader conversation around this with other, I guess, other examples of this are going to come up in the future. And I think maybe I'll feel differently on other cases. Yeah. But for this, I think because it had Yoko's blessing and the other three songs had already been made, but also, and I read this in the conversation and I thought this was a really good point. The band had always been innovative with their technology and their sound. For example, they were saying here they reversed tape loops in Taxman. They used Lennon's voice through a Leslie speaker cabinet for Tomorrow Never Knows. There was a few other examples, but essentially they were known for engaging a new technology. Yeah. And so this doesn't feel that left a field for them. No, I love it. Yeah. Now and Then by the Beatles has now reached a new peak of number 15 on global Spotify and it is set to reach number one on the UK singles chart. Love that. Crazy. A group of high-profile whistleblowers have accused the federal government of overseeing a broken system that has left whistleblowers exposed to costly legal fees and potentially jail time a week before David McBride goes to trial. Okay, before we get into this, can you run us through what a whistleblower actually is? Yeah, so a whistleblower is someone with inside knowledge of an organisation, usually an employee, who reports misconduct or dishonest or illegal activity that may have occurred within that organisation. So in Australia, like Julian Assange would be considered a whistleblower by many. Mark Felt was the Watergate whistleblower. There are many famous whistleblowers throughout history that have spoken out and tried to sort of hold big institutions or organisations to account Mm. for engaging in criminal activity or misconduct. It's incredible incredibly brave. Oh, it's so brave. Yeah. It's so brave given that the risk that they're facing, which is kind of what this entire story is about. Yeah. So who is David 
McBride. So David McBride was a military lawyer in the army who leaked classified information to the ABC that revealed allegations of war crimes by special forces in Afghanistan. So he was concerned about serious misconduct by Australian troops and he blew the whistle internally and was ignored, then to police and was ignored, and eventually then leaked the information to the ABC, our national public broadcaster. I mean, if you if you remember in 2020, the ABC was actually raided by the Australian Federal Police. Um, they, they collected files on Afghan war crimes. Yeah, we're not so, 100% sure if that is linked or not, but it's seems like it yeah, could be. I think I think it is. And so as a result of this whistleblowing, which just proves the importance of it, there was a report released called the Brereton Report, which found credible evidence of our troops unlawfully murdering 39 Afghan non-combatants, which included innocent civilians. So there are multiple pieces of legislation which allow whistleblowing to the media under particular circumstances. So when David McBride leaked this information to the ABC, he thought he was doing the right thing and that he would be protected under these pieces of legislation. But the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions is pursuing him on five charges anyway, which carry together a maximum prison sentence of 100 years, I believe. So he's also waited four years and eight months before facing trial for these, like, alleged classified leaks. Mm. But he faces a very real possibility of going to prison for this. And and realistically, all he has done is attempt to bring murder and wrongdoing to account, and he's being criminally pursued for that. It's just so tough, you know, with this case in particular, for any potential whistleblowers to come forward. And exactly. that's, that's going to be awful in this. It's a deterrent because why would anyone come forward when they could face this? Yeah, and you, who knows what was said? They were probably promised protection. Yeah. I read an article from a senior lawyer at the Australian Human Rights Centre, Kieran Pender, who I actually spoke to about this case earlier this year. Wow. Um, and in February, he wrote this article for The Guardian, which basically pointed out that McBride was the only Australian charged in relation to these war crimes. So just like let that sink in. No one was charged for the crimes he uncovered that he leaked the documents in relation to that released this report and resulted in all of these findings. Mm. He is the only person being pursued. So I I guess the question that's probably on most people's minds is like, why why are we pursuing him, right? Like, what is the purpose of this? I think this is where the letter comes in because as this trial date fast approaches and this sort of criminal trial in Canberra starts, many high-profile whistleblowers have composed this document, which includes Commonwealth Bank whistleblower Jeff Morris, who actually triggered a royal commission into the financial services sector. And many people might also know Peter Fox, who helped trigger a royal commission into the institutional sexual abuse of children. They basically said the Albanese government's record on protecting whistleblowers was pathetic. And since they had come to power, they had had basically just offered really empty platitudes and empty promises that were never acted on or sort of legislated. So they're arguing that the Albanese government needs to step up and protect these men, otherwise other people won't sort of report wrongdoing, as we've just said. So... Instead, these whistleblowers are being subjected to years-long legal processes, some racking up millions of dollars in legal fees, and the trauma of these judicial processes and the threat of lifelong imprisonment. It's ridiculous. Why would you come forward and report wrongdoing? And it's really important to understand that the Attorney General, Mark Dreyfus, does have the ability to stop this. So Section 71B of the Judiciary Act allows the Attorney General to stop prosecutions that are not in the public interest. Mm. And interestingly, there's actually a petition that's been signed by, I think it's 81,000 people to stop the prosecution of David McBride. So this is a really interesting case because you see this clear conflict between what the public believes is right and what the government is doing. And 
this power has been used recently um, to stop the prosecution of Bernard Collery, who was facing charges related to details of an alleged spying operation in Timor-Leste during sensitive oil and gas treaty negotiations. So there's precedent for it. There's recent precedent for it. And Mark Dreyfus was the Attorney General at the time that stopped that. So why would they not do it? Is it they don't believe what he's blown the whistle on? Was there not enough evidence? It's not about that. I think it's because the legislation that protects whistleblowers is pretty complex. So it gives the DPP a loophole to pursue his criminal Mm. prosecution. I I don't specifically know why. I don't know what's happening behind the scenes because it is obviously because it's war crimes. Yeah. It's quite a serious issue. And And it would be a lot for Australia to admit to then. Yeah. And that's part of it is it's like, in a way, by not stopping David McBride's prosecution, they are deterring people from telling the truth. Mm. And that in itself, that omission is an act. And I think that's really important to note because I don't know the government's reasoning. But I did see today this ABC article that included polling from the Australia Institute, which was done in conjunction with the Human Rights Law Centre, which showed Australians, three quarters of us believe whistleblowers make Australia a better place. 84% of Australians support stronger legal protections and 79% support the establishment of a whistleblower protection authority. Of course. Exactly. So when we're thinking about public interest, this prosecution clearly isn't in the public interest. And so the Attorney General should act on it. Yeah. I just think, I think this is a really important story because it's about to begin. We're going to see it unfold. And this is a a last ditch effort. There's been a lot of lobbying, a lot of rallies, a lot of signatures, Mm. a lot of work done by the Human Rights Law Centre, no action. And the story itself is so important, but what this signifies to so many future stories or potential stories is huge. Exactly. It's all about what it communicates to the general public about speaking out about wrongdoing. It's mm. it's saying remain silent because you're facing more, you're going to face harsher punishments than the people that you're dobbing on, basically. Thank you, everyone. We're at our Q&A section again for this week. If you do have any questions you want to send in, please do. Our Instagram is bigsmalltalk underscore pod. Uh, Thank you, everyone, who has been sending stuff in recently. It's been great. We saw a question here from a girl called Ella, and she had asked, give me your favourite book, favourite podcast, favourite subscription, favourite TV show, and favourite movie. Oh, this is a lot. I had to, I, When this, I saw this question, I was like, I don't even know. I have to sit with this. This more than any other DM we've ever had. I was Agreed. like, oh, who am I? <laughs> I know, but I love being asked these questions, these personal like interests. Okay, what's your favourite book? My favourite book is The Book Thief. <gasps> really? Yeah. I read it really early on and I think it was just one of the first books that like stuck with me afterwards and I just thought the character Death was the most like clever character I'd ever and I think it was probably like I haven't read it oh you should read it I will read it everyone kind of hates it because it was for a lot of people they had to read it at school yeah but I just remember thinking it was so clever and I just, I just fell in love with the book, and I probably read it every year. No, I get that. Yeah. I, lo- I love that. I, I think mine. This is a bit lame, but mine's Matilda. Really, I yeah. love Matilda. Uh, it was like, it was like the book that really gave me a love of reading, and I just like can't ever get over it because I always will rewatch the movie at Christmas time just for no, like it's not a Christmas movie. I just love watching it uh, like when I'm I home. Love that. I love Matilda. You know what? That actually, when we talk about movies, I think we could split it into your favorite childhood and current because I think they're two very different I things. I think they are. Agreed. All okay, right. what would be your favourite? Oh my god, sorry. Okay. My favourite childhood movie is Toy Story 2. <laughs> I like, Because I watched it before Toy Story. So I yep. was really obsessed with Al's Toy Barn and Jessie and like the When Somebody Loved Me and she was thrown under the bed and like that, you know, Emily, wow. her owner. I was really into that. And then I think my, this is a bit traumatising this movie, but my favourite normal adult life movie is uh, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. 
I've never seen that. It's like an Oscar movie, but it's like very good. All right, what are your two? Okay, my favourite childhood movie was Anastasia. I love Anastasia! <laughs> like, I listen to that soundtrack all the time still. That. Like, it makes me... I love that movie so much. Um, and then my favourite adult movie is Little Women. Greta Gerwig. Greta Gerwig. I watched that two weeks ago. Yeah. Love. So good. Okay. Favourite podcast? I'm not a big podcast listener, ironically. <laughs> but my favourite... The one the one podcast I always listen to is The Imperfects. <gasps> I was going to say that. Really? I was going to say that. I love Because I wasn't going to say anything that I already work on. I'm like, we have to remove those. It probably would be The Imperfects or Diary of a CEO. Oh, really? I never listened to that. So it's maybe really good. Some really good apps in that. Yeah. Favourite subscription? This I don't know if this is loserish, but I love the my New York Times subscription. It's also going to say that I, because we were talking this morning about how you sign up for particular like daily emails. Yeah, it's I get really the, good. The daily read, I get the daily update. Like I get a lot of different. I I love my New York Times. It's like four bucks a month or something. It's so good. So good. It's so good. Um. Okay, let me try and think of a different one then. Sorry. Though. You know what I'm going to say, mm. and I'm only new on it. I'm going to say Kick App. I have Kick App. I love it. I think it's worth it. I love the meals. I did a little meditation last night. Yeah. I'm not using it. I, I need to use it better. I need to, like, yeah. implement it more because I'm still quite – I'm just yeah. working it into my routine currently. But yeah. I really like it. It's good fun. I genuinely only really use it for, like, the breathwork meditation and then the recipes. But I did do their 0 to 5K run club. I'm oh, do- wow. I'm doing that. It's really – because you can either do – like, they do an eight-week program and you can either pick 0 to 5, 5 to 10, or 10 to 21. And I'm obviously on 0 to 5. Love it. But I just love having someone in my ear and it's really – I find Laura really motivating. I really love – I'm really enjoying the app. That's really nice. I've, I have like the flow, like the Pilates yes. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's yes. nice. It's nice. Okay. Do you mean to ask you? I feel like I'm always going first. And then okay, like, we'll I'm go. Pissed. What's your favorite TV show? Oh, my God. <laughs> TV show is actually hard because I don't actually watch a lot of yeah. TV, to be honest. I think it has to be Fleabag. Oh. Obvious. Ooh, so good. Obvious. One of the so most good. iconic shows of all time. Don't watch it with your parents. No. Nope. I'd made that mistake on the first episode and I was like, I'm going to take it solo from here, actually. Yeah. Yeah. But, God, I love Phoebe. Oh, she is genuinely a genius. Yeah, she's a genius. What's mm. yours? Um, I think it's between Outlander, first two seasons only. I think it goes rogue after that. Or Bump, which is an Australian show, and it's on Stan. I really, I am passionate about Bump. I think it's such a good show. It's, wow, it's I haven't a, seen it. It's about, like, a young girl who wants to be the Prime Minister. Of course, I would like it. <laughs> and she just goes into the toilet and is really sick at school one day, and it's because she's pregnant and she didn't know, and she gives birth in the toilet at school, and it's about how she handles that. It's oh, my God. It's a really great show. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Okay, fantastic. Well, I hope. <laughs> that all answered your questions then. That's I, really fun. That's, that made that me I feel like really I know fun. I feel like I know you better. I feel like I know I feel like I know myself better too. Yeah. I wasn't wow. sure about those answers, but that was great learning experience. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys so much for listening again this week. Please tap the bell if you're listening on Spotify. Follow. If you're on Apple, leave a comment. We honestly love it all. It's the reviews so nice. are really nice. It's so nice. Uh, thank you so much, guys. And please, if you want to send any questions, feedback, thoughts, anything, it's bigsmalltalk underscore pod. Bye. See you next Tuesday. See you next Tuesday. <laughs>